everyone, it's Chloe, and I'm so excited to share something fabulous with you, Vogue's first ever global fashion community, Vogue Club. Our members get to mingle with Vogue editors, yes, including me, and fellow fashion enthusiasts at exclusive events around the world. And that's just the start. Membership opens doors to the fashion industry, bringing you expert career advice and insider style and beauty tips. What are you waiting for? Head over to Vogue.com membership to join. And here's a little treat. Use code TRT20 and snag 20% off your membership. That's TRT20 for 20% off your ticket to Vogue Club. Are you in? This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Run-Through. I'm Chloe Mal. And I'm Taylor Antrim, Deputy Editor of Vogue. Taylor, we are very excited. We are interrupting our very exciting jaw-dropping, get get the pun, and jaw-dropping, jaws-dropping. Jaws there you go, there you go, there you go. <laughs> our jaws-dropping Shark Week to take a brief moment to celebrate the very exciting features in the October issue. Of yeah, the, the October issue has a lot of great features in it. October issue is my Loki favorite issue of the year because Ooh, it sort of has like, like everyone talks about September issue, but October it's like it's coming out right around back to school time. Everyone's yeah. excited to read for fall. It's all the fall culture happenings. There's always it's like a meaty issue. Yeah, this is that's great take. I love it. I mean, this is <laughs> this is what happens is like it, and when you work at Vogue, September issue is such a big deal, and it's really a sort of fashion bible. But on the feature side, Anna's very much like, we need, like, four or five really significant features in this issue. And yeah. so, of course, you, like, kill yourself trying to line up all these, like, important <laughs> features. And then when it comes time to close the September issue, the fashion stories are so many pages that it crowds out all the features. So one feature after another gets pushed from the issue. And that means you have an October issue waiting. You have a super October overflow. Waiting in the wings yeah. to um, to accommodate all your ambitious uh, September features. That is not exactly what happened this year. It just so <laughs> happens that we um, have three really Really strong reads, I would say, in the October issue, which I'm quite Which are of. what? <laughs> well, let's start with the cover story. We okay. have uh, Kate Winslet on the cover. Out today. Uh, out today. And she is portraying Lee Miller in a film called Lee that she stars in and produced. Oh, the story is so good because you, oh, I love Lee Miller and Kate Winslet and Wendell Stevenson, the writer. It's like yes. this 
dynamic trio. It's a wonderful trio. And, you know, Kate Winslet just, her, her, like, people just seem to love Kate Winslet. So that's one feature I'm excited about. Okay, and so what's, tell me, what else are you excited about from the October issue? Because we interviewed someone else from the October issue who me, Choma, and all of the producers just fell madly in love with. She was heaven. Yes, Corinne Jean-Pierre. We're mm. very excited about the White House press secretary. Well, if she hasn't charmed the White House press corps, she's certainly charmed the run-through press corps. Well, mm. one of the interesting things about this story is that she hadn't fully charmed the White House press corps. I would say that uh, the first year of Kareen's life on the job was sort of interesting. I mean, some people felt that she was green or just or just not giving clarity. Well, from and the following Jen Psaki, who was such a pro at it in such a sort of cutthroat but charming, sassy way, I feel like it was always going to be a hard... And act to follow. And it's it's a job where people are picked over in this um, mm-hmm. position, and it's highly public. But what I found so interesting was that the timing of this, to profile her over a year into the job where, you know, she'd really grown into the role yeah. and was ready to talk about it, ready to talk about being a mom, which I think yeah. is a really bit of a scoop in the story, is that she— Soleil, her has, nine-year-old. Yeah, nine-year-old. It's written by Maddie Kahn, who did a wonderful job of really capturing her and yep. went down to the White House and saw her in action, and um, I'm excited about that story. Yeah, we loved it because we chatted with her at 4 p.m. Friday before Labor Day weekend, and she was full business you know, outfit in her office, about to head to Florida with the president and the first lady the next morning to see damage from the hurricane. I mean, there is no time off for this woman. Can you imagine doing that job? I mean— It, it truly sounds like hell, which we tried to ask her in a slightly more, you know, charming way, saying, what's the pleasure in this? Yeah, right. Anyway, so one, two, those are two features. I want to mention one more, which is a wonderful deep dive profile of the designer Peter Mullier, who's the— um, He's the new designer at Alaya. At Alaya. And, and this who is, wrote that? This is written by Nathan Heller, who's mm, our fave. a string of, like, really wonderful fashion designer profiles for us. And this one, you know, he does such a good job of, like, capturing what life is like on the job, but also the personal side of Mueller's life. So those are three really good features in the October issue. All right. Well, here we go. Hi, Wendell. How are you? Hi, Wendell. I'm good. We are so happy to chat with you. Thank you for having me. One of my jobs here at Vogue is typically I assign almost all the cover stories. And for the October issue, which has Kate Winslet on the cover, we needed a we needed a sort of a special writer because this was a piece that was going to be about um, the film Lee, which is uh, Kate Winslet's, um, she produced and stars in this film about Lee Miller, who is a photojournalist um, from mid-century. And it needed a writer who could both do the sort of celebrity profile, because we, you know, obviously have wonderful Kate, wonderful interview with Kate. But we also wanted, I also wanted someone who could talk about, you know, who, who had spent time as a war journalist and maybe knew something about Lee Miller and knew something about her legacy. And that really brought me to you, Wendell, because you and I had talked years before. I I knew of you, and we have friends in common. And you and I had talked, I think, about um, the terrorist attacks in Paris. And uh, I so enjoyed that conversation. A piece didn't didn't come out of it. Yeah, but a book did. It was my. It was. It was. It was a novel. Actually, I started off writing a, a nonfiction book, and then I ended up writing a novel after the Bataclan attacks. I remember I was in a kind of furious rage, and oh I wrote gosh. a sort of expiation novel very very quickly maybe that's how you should write first novels very quickly like pulling the plaster <laughs> so. off just like get something down 
Anyway, it's one of the pleasures of the job to sort of think about who who could write this specific story and bring something a little bit special to it. And that that brought me to you, Wendell. And I remember writing you and saying, like, it's a, it's a little bit of a funny, you know, amalgam of things. We need a celebrity profile. We need a little bit of essay, a little bit of first person, and a little bit of um, historical sort of storytelling. Because I think not many people know who Lee Miller was. Mm-hmm. But Wendell, you, yeah, well, you did, right? Yeah, no, I mean, I was thrilled with the assignment. Um, not least, I mean, Lee Miller has been, you know, a heroine of mine for a long time. That was the, you know, the generation of female war correspondents along with Martha Gellhorn and and others who, you know, really kind of paved the way for a different kind of reporting in war, for looking at a more, quite often a sort of a wider a wider lens, a more human perspective, looking at women's stories, but also human stories behind the lines. Wendell, for people who don't know who Lee Miller is, could you give us a little elevator pitch? And um... A little elevator pitch for Lee Miller is tough because <laughs> she's this sort of extraordinary larger-than-life character whose you know, life spans the 20th century and whose personal life really kind of describes, I don't want to say every woman, but many women. She In what was, way? Because, because it was many-storied, many chapters, many lovers, um, successes, failures, traumas, sadnesses, triumphs and disasters. She was born in Poughkeepsie in upstate New York. She became a model for Vogue in the 20s. Um, She was incredibly beautiful. um, And she went to Paris in the 20s and 30s and fell in with the very kind of uh, avant-garde crowd of surrealist artists and photographers. And she was very interested in photography herself and became a partner, model, muse, and lover of Man Ray. Notably, she was painted by Picasso. She um, was an inspiration for um, Jean Cocteau for a film of his and appeared in it. Um, And then she got married to an Egyptian and went to live in Egypt. I felt like sometimes I was just following in her footsteps (laughs) because I lived in Cairo at one point. (laughs) Also, um, and she took these extraordinary pictures. She would take ex- ex- expeditions out into the desert and throughout um, the Middle East at that time. And she took extraordinary surrealist or pictures of desert formations, almost abstract. And then when the war uh, started, she actually had fallen in love with um, Roland Penrose, an English surrealist painter um, and very much part of that surrealist milieu, pre-war surrealist milieu. And she found herself in London where she began to work for Vogue and take pictures for Vogue. Um, At first covering sort of the women's war and women's fashions, but increasingly doing reportage. This is in uh, the early 40s during World War II. In the early 40s when the war began from 39 onwards. And she was taking pictures of, for example, female auxiliary pilots who were flying um, fighter planes between bases. She took pictures of the women who were um, operating the arc lights that would shone into the night sky to illuminate the German bombers overhead so that the anti-aircraft batteries could target them more easily. And then sort of in increment, she became a war photographer and she went to France after D-Day in 1944 and pretty much just kept going and followed the the Allied advance into Germany and and was, you know, became famously one of the 
first photographers into many con several concentration camps. She was there at the liberation of Dachau and her photographs of those atrocities that we now know are sort of indelibly inscribed, you know, in, in many of us memories of the, you know, the piles of emaciated bodies. A lot of those uh, are Lee Miller's. Wasn't she the first photographer in into Dachau? Yeah, she was the wow. first photographer into Dachau. And it's really interesting that this history is involves Vogue in this very sort of extraordinary way. I mean, this is one of the reasons this cover story came to my attention and we started so long ago, is that in order for the film, Lee, that Kate Winslet uh, has made about Lee Miller, in which she plays Lee Miller, um, in order for that film to be made, Kate Winslet needed permission from Vogue to um, use likenesses of Vogue House, which is the um, Vogue offices in London that's depicted in the film and several other Vogue images. So, Kate came to wow, Vogue. Wow, so Kate was that in the weeds. She was completely in the weeds on this film. It seems like she... I mean, you get a sense of that from Wendell's piece, but I wasn't... I mean, that's impressive. It, that, like it was she, a real passion project, yeah. as I understood it from her, from very early on. I mean, she's... And I think she spent eight years developing it. Um, and she was involved... She was absolutely dedicated to trying to, you know, to bringing Lee... Um, to life, but also kind of respecting the integrity of Lee as a as a great photographer, because inevitably, as a mid-century woman, you know she was a bit overshadowed by you know uh, by the, the 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 maleness of the industry. Um, and after the Second War, actually, she you know pretty much stopped taking pictures in that way. She suffered a lot. She uh, was quite traumatized. Uh, she had a lot of PTSD from the war mm. and from other events in her life. Um, she slumped into alcoholism um, and found her redemption in cooking, mm. uh, which is another sort of nexus that I find with her because I also like cooking a lot and write about food when I'm not in war zones. You know, it, it is something that I knew um, becoming an editor at Vogue that Vogue had published these extraordinary images from World War II, the likes of which you don't expect to see, certainly not in a fashion magazine, and maybe not at all. I mean, one of the really interesting threads around Lee Miller, I find, is this question of what should we publish? And this is really crystallized in the film. And, and Wendell, when you and I were uh, working on this story together, we talked at length about British Vogue's decision to publish only one of her images from Dachau and a U.S. Vogue's decision to publish many more and much bigger. Can you talk a little bit about sort of that history and maybe also like the contemporary resonances. I mean, I feel like today we're constantly wondering about should we be publishing images of violence or should we not? Well, I think that, I mean, Vogue was incredibly, you know, brave and forthright to publish those pictures um, and to, you know, to do so in, you know, under a headline, which was believe it, you know, this is oh, what wow. happened, this is real. I mean, it was really strong, really impactful. But I understand, too, you know, that the British Vogue published the, the, the terrible pictures of Dachau much smaller, but they, it was included in a kind of larger photo essay about Germany post-Allied victory. Right. And I think that, you know, what's interesting is that Vogue became, and Lee Miller's part in, in, that, in the coverage of, you know, it was part of a total war effort. Have you, Wendell, had an experience or with colleagues who are photographers, also discussed sort of how much do you show, how much do you describe? Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I'm not a photographer. Um, so, so you know, a notebook is a little bit less intrusive. Sure. And I always, um, you know, check, check back with people and try to make very clear what they want to be kept private and what mm. they, you know, what they're happy to, 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 
to be known or to be written about and so forth. And it, and it happened actually the morning, the day that I went to Farley's, um, Lee Miller and her husband's um, home, which has now been turned into a museum to their kind of their surrealist life together. And I was about to interview her son, Tony Penrose, who manages her estate and is her uh, Lee Miller's biographer and, and whose book um, much of the, the, the narrative of the movie is based on. And just before I, I met him, I arrived early. I had a sandwich in the car park. A friend of mine called me, a photographer, a magnum photographer, in fact, and he was just back from Ukraine. And he said, I really need to talk it through. I've got these images. I was in a field hospital, you know, right behind the front lines in Bakhmut. You know, I don't know what to show. I don't know because I don't know what I should edit. I don't know what I should try and self-censor. Is it too much or too little or how much gore and blood should I show? Mm. And it was. we had this kind of conversation over the course of about half an hour and it was a really difficult um, it's a really difficult decision. And I said to him, you know, it's kind of a judgment call between showing a reality, between intruding or imposing on someone's privacy in that very exposed, raw, terrible moment in their lives and their family's lives. Um, and also, you know, being too graphic that somebody doesn't want to look at it. Mm. And I said, you know, it's it's that famous line, it's sort of like pornography or whatever. You kind of know it when you see it. You mm. just have to have... you. I said, you know, when you were taking those pictures, what you wanted to show and communicate and describe. Mm. So that's, you have to be the judgment call on this of what you want to, has, does this picture do what you wanted it to do? I mean, one of the things I would say about the film Lee, which we should add, is playing the festival circuit now. It's going to be a okay. Toronto when is it Film out? Festival. We don't know yet. It's seeking distribution I on see. the festival circuit. It will undoubtedly get it. It's a very good movie. Um, Wendell's seen it. I, I've seen it. Wendell, one of the things that really struck me about the movie, well, a couple things struck me, but um, Kate Winslet, and we should talk about her because she's extraordinary, but she, she, she is so fearless about, you know, getting uh, the photographs that she wants to get, that she needs to get um, to do her job. And yet she doesn't seem intrusive at all. I mean, we, we should probably talk about the Hitler bathtub picture because that's a really famous I one. I want to talk about that. And is depicted in the film and is really... Uh, you know, the whole episode is a symbol of how fearless Lee Miller was. Um, I think you need to have that kind of personality to get some of these pictures that really stand the test of time. And you need, and you need somebody like Kate Winslet who's fearless in, you know, getting the movie made and portraying somebody with yeah. that kind of integrity too. I mean, there's a scene in the movie in Dachau, um, which is, you know, Kate was incredibly... Um, careful um to to be as accurate and true to exactly what had happened um and what lee miller did and the photographs that she took as possible i mean <laughs> let's talk about kate one of the things i was excited about with this story is that when you have a cover story of an featuring an actress of a certain age you're just going to get good material they give the best <laughs> interviews and it just struck they me, just don't give a shit she's a total <laughs> pro she's a total pro you know she she knows exactly what she's doing you know she's been doing it for a long time and she even said to me at one point um, at lunch or something she said something like you know look you know i've been doing this for a long time i know how to do it well she said you know it's my job you know, obviously, I'm not going to tell you everything, but it's my job to make you feel like I'm telling you everything. Incredible. <laughs> right. So she, so even to have the kind of, I was so impressed that even to have the kind of openness, awareness, and confidence, mm. just confidence to say, to, to admit to somebody exactly what's going on. Well, Wendell, I'm curious because I've written quite a few celebrity profiles, but I have not 
reported from a war zone. And I'm curious what the challenges are, how they are different, and if there's any sort of tools from your on-site reporting, you know, in more conflict uh, areas than, say, a London restaurant? I What, what I've learned to do... Um, and I, th- I think is to is that I now have a kind of principle, a reporting principle of first do no harm, mm. right? So it's not my job to expose or to embarrass somebody generally mm. in my work. I mean, it, it w- if I was a political reporter, that would be a different thing. But that's not what yeah, I'm I doing. What I'm, most, <laughs> what, I, what I'm mostly doing is interviewing ordinary people in mm. extraordinary circumstances. And it's not my job to expose them or whatever. It is my job to ask difficult questions to a politician or somebody who's responsible. And it's certainly my job to probe and to ask questions that may be tricky or sensitive. But what I always do, and I did it with Kate too, which was to say, look, you know, it's not, you know, it's not my job to, do you know what I mean, pry into your private life particularly, you know. I mean, one of the things, though, that she was quite um, unguarded with you about is um, she's uh, she's nude in the film quite a bit, right? Because uh, it brings us back to the Hitler bathtub moment. I mean, what Lee Miller did is uh, at the end of the war, they, she was in um, – Hitler's, uh, it was his apartment in Munich, is that right? Yes, Wendell? abandoned. Abandoned it, apartment, it, yes. What's extraordinary about it is that it wasn't the end of the war. It was the day that Dachau was liberated. Right, right, right. And Dachau is extraordinarily right in the suburbs of Munich. You know, right. it's not wow. in the middle of nowhere. I didn't and realize so that. She, they went from Dachau to Hitler's apartment in Munich. Um, it was not his primary residence, but he had an apartment there that I think was above a sort of, you know, party office or something. Right. And they took a bath in the bathtub because it was the only place that had hot water in the city. But there was also an element of Lee Miller like knowing that she had a she had a moment and taking advantage of it. And that this Oh no, you know, she the situates shot was staged. Yeah, yeah, the shot, no, the was, shot was very very much so. They she moved a little small portrait of Adolf Hitler so that it sits on the bathtub rim. Otherwise it just looks like an ordinary bathtub. It could right. be, you know, any bathtub anywhere. Well, and her and muddy she, boots, which is so the, the muddy boots are extraordinary because they're on the bath mat yeah. and it's the mud from Dachau mm. on those boots. And when you know a little bit about the story and the background of that story, it's really resonant and really extraordinary and, and carry, it's not a sort of, um, you know, selfie. It's, a, it's, a, it's an extraordinarily poignant moment um, that describes Lee Miller's experience and David Sherman's experience that day and the surreality of finding themselves in this place, in this man's, you know, in Hitler's um, apartment. Um, and it's really powerful, really extraordinary. But Kate talked about her body and and being in the film. Can you tell me a little bit about what that aspect of the conversation was? Well, I think, you know, we all know that she's gotten, she, you know, when she was younger, she got a huge amount of stick for her weight, inverted commas. And, um, and as, you know, all actresses, it seems to be a sort of, you know, open season um, in this very, you know, tabloid mauling way. Um, and, and I think that it's, you know, as she's described it to me, it's taken a bit of time, but she's now, you know, got very comfortable with her own body and comfortable with that, yeah, this is me and this is who I am and I'm just not going to waste any time in worrying about this inch or that shadow or this bit of sag. And it's a part of her sort of fear, fearlessness of inhabiting characters totally. Mm. You know, Kate was was absolutely down for 
taking her top off and not worrying about it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's brave. It's impressive. Yeah. Wendell, how do you, and forgive me if this is too personal, but how do you protect yourself if you come back from reporting in Ukraine for a week and, and you get back home? You live in Brittany, is that right? Mm-hmm. How, how do you make sure that you don't struggle with the trauma of that and being able to adapt to sort of ho-hum day-to-day life after the, I'm sure, intense adrenaline and and trauma I mean, of I th- being there. I think I'm not a super frontline journalist as, you know, as, as many are. I'm not in the trenches. I tend to be a little bit back behind a corner <laughs> talking to somebody in a cafe. Okay, nevertheless. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I do. Um, number one, I have a very strange thing where I know it sounds really odd, but I've never seen a dead body, hmm. which seems almost extraordinary, but mm. I have deliberately never seen a dead body. I've even been in a morgue in Baghdad and failed to see a dead body. I mean, I think it's a sort of wow. willfulness. Well, that's sort of right? impressive. It's, it's, <laughs> at some point, it's impressive, but I just decided at some point, since I'm not a photographer, I didn't need to see that to tell a story, right? right? That wow. that was just an image I was going to protect myself from. You have to listen to horrible stories, but it's not quite the same as seeing something. I think, you know what I mean, the image can be very triggering and scare and, and yeah. cause tra- trauma stuff. And then I'm also just quite aware of trying to, you know, of unwinding. And sometimes it's more possible than other times, but there's no doubt that I have an extraordinary gift in being able to come back to this small little sleepy village and swim in the cold sea and just walk around the cliffs. And it just, you know, the decompression is just absolute. I love that you and Lee Miller were both great chefs in your downtime. And I read that Lee Miller liked to cook green chicken. Do you know what that is? I did look it up. In fact, I've I've got her cookbook, but it's like not surrealist. To oh, she had a cookbook. How fun! Yes. That's of such a great she gift. Made, well, I think I can't. I don't know if it came in her lifetime, but she was like a serious cook. It wasn't just sort of she liked to cook for friends on weekends. She was a surrealist cook, and James Beard was a friend, and all these sort of big cooking names and food names from the seventies would come down to Farley's. There was the original farm to table she was doing. When I walked in, her son said, and this is the main room. She used to call it the events room where she would slaughter a pig and then oh cut, my up, God. cut it up. Oh my God. But, like they would be butchering a pig for Christmas and this kind of thing. I mean, it was full on. And so she liked to do surreal dinner parties. And I think one of her famous dishes was green chicken or green velvet chicken or something like this. Sorry, what makes um, it green? Is it the amount of I hang can't time remember what before was green. you roast it? I can't. I can't remember what was green about it. We'll have to look it up. I have to say, I I do have to give a shout out to your wonderful novel, um, Margot, which I read and it came out um, earlier this year. I devoured it over the last few days, Wendell. And I. I Oh, that's very kind. Thank you. I have to imagine that part of this conversation about you, you know, finding respite from the adrenaline of, of your war journalism is in fiction writing. And that fiction must certainly sort of express another side of you and operate in a different gear than your reporting. Is that right? I know. It's fiction, food, and war. And they say that, you know, it's like jack of all trades, master of none. I think, you know, I'm supposed to, you know, as if you're a writer, you're supposed to like find your niche, you know, and stick to it. Then you you get to hone your craft and be celebrated for that. And I'm like... Yes, I'm spread too thinly. Yeah. <laughs> I suspect because I, I get bored of one thing and want to do something else. I mean, I think you asked, you know, how how do you how do you keep sane or whatever? Yeah. I mean, but it's also you know it's, it's balanced. Do you know what I mean? You have to you have to believe that there are other you know there are other stories in the world. There are other things to write about. There are other ways to live. There are other places to be. And I think you know lockdown when I was 
here in Brittany, I remember thinking, okay, when's now what am I going to do? Mm. You're a writer, go find a story. There's got to be a story somewhere, right? It's it's sort of, you know, there are stories everywhere. War has very dramatic ones, but there are stories everywhere. The run-through will be back in just a moment. Get balanced or thrive trying. My name is Les, and I'm the host of Balanced Black Girl, a podcast dedicated to helping you feel your best. Join me for casual conversations about what it means to live a well-rounded life. I cover everything from how to make friends as an adult to how to create a workout routine that works for you to how to practice better financial wellness. Tune in for approachable conversations with wellness thought leaders and inspiring guests, as well as intimate solo chats with me for relatable advice. Follow wherever you get your podcasts and look out for new episodes every Tuesday. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Maybe a chef-grade range made you want to hone your cooking skills or a high-tech tennis racket made you want to work on your backhand. I recently bought a new pair of running shoes and that made me love hitting the pavement again. Well, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This podcast is supported by Macy's. Mother's Day is May 12th, and Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Shop by price, 25 and under to 100 and under. Category, like fragrances and handbags. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything or for grandma. Macy's has all the hottest gift ideas like Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, Samsung smart TVs, and more. Go to macy's.com slash gift finder to shop. That's macy's.com slash gift finder today. I can't even believe that we spoke to the press secretary. Literally, we spoke to the press secretary. Oh, we were all fangirling in such a hard way. If you don't know her name... Which you should. Too shady on you. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's Karine Jean-Pierre. Beautiful name. Beautiful name. White House press secretary. Mm-hmm. I will say second only to her daughter, Soleil's yeah, name, which name. is also beautiful. Yeah. She's the first black and LGBTQ um, press secretary. So she literally made history with her appointment. Mm-hmm. She's also one of the kindest person we've ever met. We were... Deeply People, charmed. not persons. If you, <laughs> if you can't, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> we hopped on Zoom with her and got a glimpse of her office. Um, she has a spacious office in the West Wing where she and her whole team gathered to talk about the briefings and the news before every day when she goes into the press briefing. And she, this was actually Friday afternoon of Labor Day weekend. And the next day she was flying to Florida with the president and the first lady to survey the damage from the hurricane. But it just was an example that she's never really off. Yeah. And she's profiled in the October issue, which is exciting. It's a great story by Maddie Kahn, who really spent a lot of time with her and, and got some great fodder. Yeah. 
would you tell us a little bit about your day today? I know you have a particularly early wake up. <laughs> I do. I have a particularly early wake up indeed. Okay. So I normally wake up around 4.30 every morning. Oh, my it eyes is brutal. are brutal. It is brutal. And uh, I usually get up. Uh, it takes a lot of willpower nowadays to get myself out of bed. So I got up this morning, 4.30. I pick up my my both of my phones. I look through them and I just start getting ready, whether, you know, it's a shower, you know, drinking water, all of the things that you do in the morning, start reading it. Well, that I do in the morning, start reading in, um, looking to see what happened overnight. What's your news diet? Like what, what are those stories coming from? So it's usually, gosh, it's all the tip sheets, which is like, um, you know, Politico, um, uh, oh my gosh, I can't think of uh punch bowl, all of the, all of, all of those, right. You kind of take them all in. Uh, and then the usual Washington Post, New York times, uh, Wall Street Journal, all all of those as well. Just kind of reading through, seeing what's going on, uh, what stories all are online they online or any print. So I do everything online at home, and then when I come in, I do uh, the print. And this morning, uh, uh, I had to wake up my daughter this morning, and so it's like also checking in on her and be like, hey, okay, because school started this week. It started uh, on Monday, so today was a later day. She's nine years old. She's nine. She just turned nine late May. Is she starting third grade? She's starting fourth grade. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah. Fourth grade. It's exciting. It sounds like every moment of your day is spoken for. Are there any times that you can <laughs> you can turn off your phone? When was the last time that you did that? Do you remember the last time that you were it, just like, I have never your done phone that. in the other room? No. <laughs> no, never done that. And so it, this is really interesting because I, it's so funny you said that. I say, to people all the time. I'm never by myself. It is rare that I am by myself. You see my office. I actually have a big office for a reason because in most offices in the West Wing are really tiny. You're lucky to get any type of real estate in the West Wing because it's West Wing is people think it's big, but you come and it's actually super tiny. But mine is a little bit bigger because as the press secretary, I get briefed all the time. People are constantly coming into my office, sitting down, briefing me, you know, talking about whatever issue of the day is, how we're talking about it, what's our messaging, and all of the things that are incredibly important to the American people that we know that they want to hear about, or even, you know, what the White House press corps is going to write about. So I have people in my office all the time, and it's very rare that I'm on my own. That is a rare, non existing thing. Uh, last week, I was on vacation, which is real wild to say. Um, Where did you go? Anywhere fun? I got to see my mom. I got to see my family. I got to see some friends. Soleil and I went up to New York. It was it was actually really lovely. Slept in a little bit. And there was one of the days where uh, the president called me and uh, he was looking for me. And so he called, they called, uh, he called me on my work phone and I was not looking at my work phone. And all of a sudden I got a call on my personal phone and uh, my assistant was like, hey, uh, the president is looking for you. And I was like, oh, oh God. I guess, yeah, I guess he wouldn't know that, you know, who's on vacation. It's And it's okay. It's okay for him not to know. <laughs> and so <laughs> it was really funny because I, I, he called, I picked up on my personal phone and, uh, and of course I had to be on it. Right. Because I can't say to him, sir, I'm on vacation. <laughs> you know, <Wow. laughs> I know nothing. I had to be like, yes, sir. I, you know, and answer whatever question that he had. But so the point is you're never really off and mm -hmm. you're never really 
um, on vacation in these jobs. Uh, mm. They're, you know, high profile, big jobs. You're working for the president of the United States and uh, and you just have to be, he can never really turn it off. So therefore you can't really ever turn it off. Can you describe to us that first time that you got up at the podium answering questions as the White House press secretary? Put me in your shoes. What What do you see from the podium? How many people are in the room? What are you thinking? How does it feel? So I was in many ways very lucky, if you will, because I was the principal deputy press secretary. I was Jen Psaki's principal deputy press secretary. So I was like her, her number one, if you will. So I had an opportunity for a year or plus before she left to go to the podium on a regular basis. So I was at the podium almost once a month. The transition was a mix of emotions, I think. The first day was, okay, this is it. I'm on my own in the sense of like, I'm it, you know, this is it. And also making history and in, in doing that. So you kind of have that weight as well. And it also was really hard for a different reason. When I went to the podium on that day, we have these things called toppers where you kind of give a couple of, you know, a couple of messaging pushes that the White House wants to do before you go into questions. And if you watch my briefing, sometimes I'll say, I have a couple of things for you at the top, and then we'll go into questions or a couple of announcements that we want to make. And so that day was the first time that I was at the podium, but we talked on the record about a shooting that happened in Buffalo where 10 people died. Mm -hmm. These 10 people who were murdered at a grocery store in a community in Buffalo. Uh, this happened to be a Black community. And that was my first briefing. And so and I actually wrote the topper. And what I decided to do is to talk about each and every one of them. God, how do you keep your cool through that? There are times when I have talked about a difficult thing, especially in the topper, where I think you can feel my emotion, like I get emotional. Another example is 10 days later, 21 people were shot dead at Uvalde in mm -hmm. Texas at an elementary school. And that was, when you think about 19 kids and two, uh, two adults uh, just murdered and, um, you know, my kids' age, right? They were like eight, nine, 10 years old. And uh, that was hard. That was really, really, really hard. That was essentially my first uh, two weeks at the podium. Is 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 de was dealing with gun violence, wow, in communities that were killing innocent people. I mean, how many how many briefings do you think that you've done now? Do you keep count? It's definitely been over a hundred in this capacity. Is it every day? It's almost every day. I mean, I had wow. one Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Today today was really the only day I didn't have a briefing. Uh, next week, Monday's a holiday. I'll have a briefing probably Tuesday, Wednesday. Then we head out to India on Thursday. Oh, so wow. we'll do a gaggle. What is a gaggle? As you know, we have these press briefings. We're in the briefing room. By the way, the briefing room is a lot smaller than what people imagine or think. Um, but when I'm not on the record in front of the cameras, in front of the uh, reporters in the briefing room, and we're traveling on Air Force One, I usually do what's called a gaggle. And you are on the record, you're talking to reporters, you're taking questions from reporters, but there's no camera. It's only audio. Mm. And it's like, it's it's really, it's I mean, it's, it's like you're standing up, they're, everyone's in the seat, they're crowded around you, and they're like, shouting questions and you and they're usually pretty short 
it's rare that they're very long, but they're supposed to be 15, 20 minutes. And there are about 13 reporters that travel with us. It's called the protective pool. And anytime the president goes anywhere, there's always a protective pool that that try, that covers um, everything that he does. One of the things I I wanted to ask you because um, I think I think about getting dressed myself and I think <laughs> about how many eyes are on you every single day. And I remember the first time I watched one of your briefings and I just thought, wow, like she's amazing, but she also oh. has fantastic hair <laughs> and a fantastic look, you know. And I think it's still it feels to me that I don't see so many women in position like yours with natural hair and yeah. looking the way that you do. Do people ever say that to you about how much Absolutely. the representation means? And like, oh, I get that. I tell you, I get that almost every time I see folks, people come up to me all the time and they're like, you know, thank you for your natural hair. Thank you for being you. Thank you for looking so whatever great or whatever it is that they're saying. I have to say it's not a conscious thing. I'm not trying to make a statement. It's not that at all. I've had natural hair since 2007. You know, I went natural and it's just been how I've lived my life and presented myself uh, for a very long time, my most of my adult life mm. because of the way I look. I think I'm probably more recognizable mm. than any other press secretary, right? Because I stick out for many, many different reasons. I can never be anonymous. It is not a real thing to be anonymous. In this role, I, it is it is always surprising to me what this means for people being in this job, being at the podium and seeing what they see at that podium. It moves people. It moves many people. And that is always endearing, but it, it, I, you know, not to sound Pollyannish, but it's weird to me. It is shocking mm-hmm. to me that it has yeah. such a a powerful impact because for me, I'm doing my job. I'm not trying to make a statement, a personal statement or any type of statement. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do in this job, in this role. But because of the historical significance, it means so much more for so many other people. What does Soleil think of your job? And does that, like, if you're out with her and someone says, like, hey, you mean something to me, does she, is she like, uh, this is my mom, back off? Or is she like, wow, that's cool? So hold on. I have something that is <laughs> framed that she asked me to frame. I'm going to show it to you. Yeah, read it to us. It's a letter from Soleil. It it's a letter like. from Soleil. So I, I did a career day for Soleil. I was not able to be there in person because it's hard to be anywhere in the middle of the day, uh, and you know, working here. So the principal came here and interviewed me and then they oh, cool. showed it to the school on actual career day. And it was great because I was able to say a little message to Soleil on the video. And so I got a letter from, I have, I don't know, maybe 45 letters from students, uh, from kids at the school, thanking wow. me for, for being part of their career day. This is Soleil's. And it says, dear mommy heart, you are the best mom in the world. No. You, you help people in different places and speak up for people. That's why people love you mm-hmm. and recognize you because you are a good person and a kind, loving person, and you have kind gestures and good actions. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh, she is aware. <laughs> so that tells you how she views interactions that I have with people who come up to me and she's there most of the time she's with me and it does not phase her at all. Um, 
the other day though, she did say, you know, why do people ignore me <laughs> when they come up to you? And I said, you know, it's oh. not that they're it's not that they're ignoring you. They're just so excited and they want to talk to me and let me know, you know, what I mean to them or send give a message to the president or whatever it is that they they feel like they want to tell me. But it's just that it's just an excitement. And it's like that that's all it is. And I told her it's nothing, it's nothing personal. It's just how how people are reacting um in that moment. Does she come to the White House? Yes. Oh, yes. Tell us about that. What's that like for her? Oh, uh, she comes to the White House and uh, she is like the mayor (laughs) of the White House. (laughs) As the young people say, it's a whole vibe. It's a whole vibe when she's here. Um, And sometimes like she is like roaming the the hallways. Can you imagine like at eight, nine years old, you're hanging out at the West Wing? (laughs) Eloise of the West Wing. Uh, Yeah, exactly. You know, and she's hanging around in the West Wing and I'll get a text or I'll bump into someone. They're like, I just saw your daughter. She's she's wonderful. She's so sweet. I just met Soleil. And I'm like, where are you meeting her? I'm like, where is she now? Has she met the president? Oh, yeah. So I worked for the Obama-Biden campaign in the general election in 2008. I worked in the reelect. I was in in the administration of um, of the Obama Biden administration, so she was born in 2014, and so both Obama and President Biden met her as a baby. Baby, I actually have photos. Speaking of childhood, I lived in Martinique for like a year. Were you born there? So I was born in Martinique. So both my parents are from Haiti, and so my dad left Martinique first. Left my mom behind. And uh, left Haiti, sorry, I should say, left Haiti to try, you know, as many people do to try find a better life and a better experience uh, for himself and his family. And he went to Martinique, uh, found work, started a life there, brought my mom over, and then I was born in Martinique. I my I was supposed to be born in Canada. And when I was one years old, that's when they left. And it's so funny because I have these, my my colleagues make fun of me because I have these experience with the, the president of France, uh, President Macron. Every time he sees me, he's like, you know, you're one of us. And we always have this moment. <laughs> it is the funniest thing. And all of my colleagues make fun of me because he always sees me and, come, and makes a beeline. And we have this moment. Oh, that is hysterical. Yeah, it is like, it's a big joke amongst my colleagues about my uh, my interaction with uh, President Macron, who's who has been very wonderful. But it's always funny because he always wants to claim me and the president is the president Biden's like, no, 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 no. (laughs) So it's actually very, very funny. It's always a a lighthearted experience. I'm curious. I mean, I remember when Obama wore a tan suit to a press conference (laughs) and it was a huge scandal. Oh, my God. Such a scandal. Such a scandal. And I just wonder, like, there's obviously even more pressure for a woman for what she wears on a job like this. Yeah. What, how do you get dressed in the morning and have it not be a stressful part of your life? Are there certain things you can't wear, like colors or patterns? What, how does that go for you? Before this gig, I had my own kind of my own brand, if you will. I don't have my brand anymore. (laughs) I feel like my brand is so connected to the president of the United States. I don't have my, I'm not my own person. Um, (laughs) I always tell people I cannot, even in my private time, I'm actually not Korean. I'm still the person who works for the president and speaks on behalf of the president. <laughs> um, so, but before this, I was an MSNBC contributor. I was on TV all the time, giving political commentary and um, had my kind of my own brand, like I said, my own brand. And, um, and so 
I had a lot of clothes because I was on TV all the mm. time. And so I kind of had, uh, I, I, I was ahead of the game a little bit because I knew what colors look good on me. Mm. I learned to do my own makeup. Your makeup is flawless. Let me just I appreciate say. that. It took me <laughs> many, many years to learn how to do my makeup. And people actually think like I have like a stylist. So no, no stylist, no. no. You, you, you shop for yourself yeah, shop for You myself. don't have any help. Shop. Where do you have time? I mean, here's the thing, but this is, <laughs> but this is my point because I was on TV for like four or five years. I have a wardrobe. I have like right. a lot of clothes um, and all solid colors. It is rare that you see me not wear solid colors. Sometimes I play around and I might put on, I might, you might see me at the podium with solid colors, but that's what I learned. And because of my, you know, my dark complexion, being a woman of color, bright colors actually looks very, very good. Kareen, we're going to let you go because it's Friday of Labor Day weekend and you've got, you've been up since 4.30, but we <laughs> love talking to you so much. Yeah, that was so great. Let me just say, you guys have been incredibly kind and fantastic to, to me. And as I'm uh, about to get, this, this is what you see sometimes at the podium. I do get a little emotional. As this young person who was told many times that I wouldn't be anything or I wouldn't be what I dreamt I would be uh, to have this opportunity uh, to, you know, to, to, to be talking to the folks at Vogue and be interviewed in this way and have an opportunity uh, to be featured in this way means, means a lot. You have made a young girl's dream come Aww. true in so many ways. We are so, so happy. So thank that you. Thank you. We're so happy to have had you. We're really honored, honestly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode. Tomorrow, we have an exciting in-studio episode with a tour of the new collection from Tori Birch herself. The Run for Revoke is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. The show is produced by Susie Lechtenberg, Chelsea Daniel, and Alex John Burns. It's engineered by Jake Loomis, Gabe Kiroga, and mixed by Mike Kutchman. See you soon. Bye. Hi, we're Carlene and Jill, hosts of Breaking Beauty Podcast, the show all about the breakthrough people, products, and moments in beauty. On our show, you're going to find hella inspiring guests like Emily Weiss of Glossier. And you'll get beauty tips galore from the top pros in the industry, like Kim Kardashian's makeup guru. And you'll hear skincare secrets from the likes of Dr. Pimple Popper. Plus, you'll get shopping help with our Damn Goods episodes, where we review the latest products hitting store shelves to let you know what's actually worth your money. Listen every Wednesday to Breaking Beauty Podcast. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com.